The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, is the author of three New York Times bestselling books, The Hormone Cure, The Hormone Reset Diet, and Younger. Her newest book is Brain Body Diet, 40 Days to a Lean, Calm, Energized, and Happy Self. You can read Steve Kiesling's interview uh, with Dr. Gottlieb in the February 2019 issue of uh, Spirituality and Health magazine. It's really on the website, spiritualityhealth.com. Sarah Gottlieb, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here, though I got to be honest. I mean, I I got the book. I went through the book. But by, by way of full disclosure... We're going to be talking about getting lean, calm, energized, and happy. So you should know, our listeners should know, I am fat, frazzled, exhausted, and cranky. So, you, know, you sound like just my type. Oh, there you go. And I mean, I've been this way since I was eight years old. So I, I don't know if there's any hope for me. There's certainly <laughs> hope. You know, I, I feel like we're all a work in progress and we have to, I, I want to meet you where you are. Well, where I am is uh, fat, frazzled, exhausted, and cranky, and and old. I left out old. I'm going to be 68 years old. I'm not going to change. I don't think. I keep saying I am, but maybe maybe this book will make the change. Who knows? Well, I think your cognitive function is excellent. <laughs> well, thank you. So you're saying even someone like myself, there's there's some hope for change. Well, there is. I mean, it depends on what your goals are. You know, I my goal is. I need to fit into the clothes that are in my closet. I want to have a life where I'm of service, where I'm able to do the best repair for my patients and for the the folks that I serve. And so I have to have a lot of energy to do that. And the more stable my blood sugar is, the more that I'm eating nutritious food, the more that my well is full and I can give from a place of overflow. So those are some of my drivers. Your why might be completely different. Yeah, it probably is. I, I solved the clothes in the closet problem just by buying bigger clothes. So <laughs> that's, that's one solution. They love me at Goodwill. You know, I bought it last week and then now too small it goes to Goodwill. Uh, what, I, what I like about the book, and, and you really just said it a second ago, I want to underline it. This is about 
the goal isn't really the self. The goal is uh, to give, to be more, more giving to others by having more energy yourself, right? Is that, I mean, that's, I'm, you said it so much better and I'm trying to paraphrase you because I can't quote it. But, but this is really a, a bigger task than just me, 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 me. And I want to look, you know, hot and cool and whatever. That's right. I mean, I think this gets back to maybe the, the fundamental spiritual questions. Like, why are we here? What's our job? What's our task? What's our arc? And so to me, all the books that I write are about those essential spiritual questions. And I think for many of us connecting to our, our true selves, our true nature, our inner divinity is what this work is about. And I just find that when you get your hormones aligned, when you get your blood sugar where it needs to be to support, you know, the, the best, uh, insulin trafficking inside your body, when you get your cortisol so that it's not too high, not too low, it's not giving you anxiety or depression or, you know, kind of sucking the life out of you. That's where you're able to live those spiritual questions and really um, map onto this bigger picture that I think we all have for ourselves. So you and I are switching roles in this interview because you're doing the spiritual questions I mean, if you asked me why we're here, I would have said, you know, to eat, to to have sex, and to die. I mean, that's sort of <laughs> that's sort of it. Well, but, those are important too. Okay, all right. So you know, the the um, I mean, you know, this our listeners will know it in a moment. But uh, Dr. David Perlmutter wrote the foreword to the book, and David's been on this show in the past, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, and I thought, oh, this makes the book even more interesting for me. But I want to quote something he says. Uh, so that I can blame him for saying it. So he says, Dr. Sarah Gottfried unpacks the science that clearly supports the hitherto politically incorrect notion that men's and women's brains are different. So while well, again, full disclosure, I have a man's brain. I, I know you're not supposed to say that they're different. So that's why I'm quoting Perlmutter. Don't send me any emails that I said women's brains are different than men's brains. But you're saying it. He's saying it. How are they different? Well, they're different in a number of ways. And I, I think the point here is not to dichotomize it into, you know, one up, one down. One's better, one's lesser. I think it's about um, how are they different so that we can really understand our health and understand, especially some of the, the challenges and te tensions and conflicts that we have, uh, uh, in our, in our sex and gender roles. So how are they different? So first of all, women have a bigger hippocampus. The hippocampus is the part of the brain that's involved in memory consolidation and also emotional regulation. So what that means is that we tend to have a better memory. We tend to have um, this bigger hippocampus. And what happens over time is that it can be quite vulnerable to injury. So let me take a step back and say a couple of things. First, if you look at a, a male, a man's brain versus a woman's brain, and of course we're in an era where there's a spectrum. I'm not saying that, you know, you can uh, for sure delineate it, but you can say with about 85% certainty 
that there's a sex difference that one brain is male versus the other brain being female. So about 85% certainty, it's not 100%. The hippocampus, because of its vulnerability, especially in women, then maps onto perhaps our increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. So women start to have changes in their brain that occurs beginning in their 40s. And this maps onto about a 2x increased risk of Alzheimer's. So another difference is that men tend to have a bigger cerebellum. That's the part of the brain that's involved in movement and coordination. Uh, They also tend to have a bigger amygdala. And that's the part of the brain that especially is sussing out the environment for danger and threat and risk. Hmm. So that that's, I mean, these are these are biological differences, and you're not making any psychological pronouncements from those. I'm not making psychological um, interpretations. I would say there are structural differences, like the ones I just mentioned. There's also molecular differences um, and behavioral differences. The molecular differences are things. Uh, mostly related to sex hormones. So for instance, women have more estrogen than men. Men have more testosterone in general. And then there's also differences in the brain chemicals, what we call neurotransmitters. So oxytocin, uh, serotonin, and so forth. So um, there's behavioral differences too, but I, I think that point is really important. You know, the the more psychological interpretation in many ways, is less interesting to me. What's interesting to me is to figure out, okay, why do women have double the rate of depression? Why do women have higher rates of anxiety compared to men? Why do we have twice the rate of Alzheimer's disease? Why do we have twice the rate of insomnia? What is it about the female brain that we need to understand so that we can do a better job helping women? Because I don't think throwing the latest pharmaceutical is the right answer. So those differences, are there... Other among women themselves, are there then other other divisions? I mean, is it the same across ethnic groups, racial groups? You know, as far as these rates. Well, this is you're asking a great question, which speaks to some of the biases that we have in uh, scientific research. So, I think a lot of the data that we have is um, a combination of races. But if we look at, for instance, the male brain versus the female brain, it tends to be um, Caucasians that kind of outnumber uh, other races. And so we have less information about um, some of the other uh, racial differences. And so it's hard for me to answer that question. I, I think we probably need more data. And this is not just an issue with brain imaging. It's a bigger issue as we look at the next 10 to 20 years of medicine. And we, we study things like the gene environment interaction, like what's happening with your genes and how they get expressed, what's happening with your microbes in your gut and their DNA, known as the microbiome. And so as we head in that direction, there's definitely a Caucasian bias to a lot of this data. And so that's maybe another bit of social commentary that we need. We need more racial diversity in these data sets. Okay, that I mean, I think we're hearing that in a lot of fields where where there's just that built-in, uh, you know, white male bias. Let, so, so let me actually take that up in a sense. Let, let's talk for a second about anxiety. Um, you have this chapter on anxiety, and you you um, you make this distinction between you talk about the ancient Greeks, and you make this distinction between Hippocrates 
who understood anxiety to be a medical issue, and then philosophers like Epicurus and the Stoics who saw it as a philosophical issue. And then you write this, I'm reading from the book, while I agree with Hippocrates that anxiety is a medical, that is brain-body condition, I don't agree with what strikes me as a masculine brain-down approach to solving it, merely by controlling thought and reducing pleasure. For a woman with anxiety, that's just not enough. So, you know, I'm thinking, what? What else is there other than the, the I mean, you know, the Stoics, they have all the answers. So for a woman, that's just not enough. So we have a lot of women listeners. What is enough? Well, to me, the answer is not, you know, this, uh, this either or situation of it's either a medical problem or it's a philosophical problem. And I think the problem here with the Stoics is that if I have an anxious woman sitting across from me at my, in my medical office, telling her to change her thought patterns is usually not helpful. I mean, I've found that in the past 25 years that it's usually not very helpful. Yes, there's a time and a place for things like cognitive behavioral therapy, but usually I have to get that woman in a collaborative way, feeling better first so that she feels like she's got the access to um, some of these healing modalities. So what does that mean? That means looking for the root cause of why she feels anxious. And I'll give you a quick example here. I took one of the first courses of antibiotics in my life a couple of years ago. I had a surgery in 2017. So I took a month of antibiotics at the behest of my surgeon. And after this month of antibiotics, I felt anxious for the first time in my life. And so when that happens to me, I also gained about 15 pounds, which, you know, I didn't fit into the clothes in my closet. So that was a crisis. So I, I looked at this problem and I said, wow, what does the science say? Because I never learned in medical school that taking antibiotics would make me anxious and fat. And so I went to the scientific literature and I found that anxiety is increased by 15 to 44% by a course of antibiotics. So it's these kind of connections that I think we we need to understand. It's the reason why I wrote this book, because I I came to to see that my understanding as a gynecologist who practices integrative precision personalized medicine was incomplete. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And so if my understanding is incomplete, I imagine it is for many other folks And so I want to connect these dots. And so what do we do? Going back to our woman uh, that we're trying to help. 
we want to look at what are the root causes. Often they're hormonal. So we talked, for instance, about the hippocampus and emotional regulation. Much of that is also related to the stress response system. And so that controls things like cortisol, the main stress hormone. It also controls other sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Insulin can also play a big role in anxious feelings. And then there's this thing called the gut-brain axis where the microbes that you have in your gut, their DNA outnumbers human DNA by 100 to 1. Those microbes often can make you feel more or less anxious. And that's why antibiotics have an effect. Food can affect your anxiety. So it's really important with that patient next to me to ask, what are you eating? You know, are you tanking up on coffee because you've got no energy and then you're drinking alcohol at night to calm down, both of which are going to increase your anxiety? Wow. So I tell you, when, when I was a congregational rabbi, you know, I would see people in a pastoral setting. If someone come in and they were anxious, I would actually... You know, give them a copy of Cicero or something, and they would. I said, read this. They'd fall asleep. They'd be bored, and they wouldn't feel so anxious. There, I guess. You know, that's the- <laughs> well, there is a benefit to sleep. That is for sure. <laughs> Let's talk about addiction. I read the chapter Hooked because I am a food addict, and I'm in Overeaters Anonymous. Well, so much for the anonymous part, but but I'm in I'm in OA, and and I am hooked. I, I'm you know so. I mean, I've, I've even written two books on, on 12-step as a, as a spiritual practice. But I don't deal with the science of addiction. I'm just following you know, the steps and trying to keep my eating clean. So tell us about what, what science says about addiction and, and tell me if there's a difference. I'm curious if there's a difference between uh, addictive factors in men and women. There are differences. Uh, so let me speak first to the science. You know, I I feel like we're in this really interesting period of time where we have increasing rates of addiction, certainly with the opioid crisis. Um, I would say also with food addiction, I'm a recovering food addict myself. Um, With more and more women who are drinking, um, uh, have alcohol uh, use disorder. And so as, as I look at that as a gynecologist, it makes me think, okay, what's going on? What's changing? So from a scientific basis, I would say our previous understanding of addiction, you know, kind of looking at what scientists call the reward pathway in the brain. And, you know, maybe you just don't have enough dopamine and that's why you're driven to, um, to grab a cupcake or to um, binge on alcohol. I think that's incomplete. And I, you know, as someone who's gone through the 12 step process, I'm so grateful for the process. But I also think while it's one of the most effective strategies that we have, it's also incomplete. It doesn't really consider the physiologic needs of someone who's working through recovery from addiction. It doesn't have what I would call kind of a precision and functional medicine approach to. Um, you know, what, what are, what are some of the micronutrients that might be missing? Is this someone who has hyperarousal and stress, which I often find is kind of the step before the binge behavior. Um, how can we help that person kind of calm down the hyperarousal? 
So I think we need a more comprehensive, integrative approach to addiction, which is what I've written about in this particular chapter. So I think the science has come a long way, especially with understanding, okay, we know with addiction, about half of it is genetic, half of it is environment. And so to me, that gives you a great opportunity to say, oh, look, I have, you know, this. I come from a long line of food addicts. I come from a line of, um, of people with alcohol use disorder. I have a vulnerability. And so it means that with this sticky relationship I have with food or with alcohol, I need to be really careful. I need to have, I need to be more bounded. I need to, you know, kind of fill up um, my relationship with something bigger than myself, uh, which is something we develop, as you know, in 12-step, along with the nutritional needs and ways of calming down the hyperarousal. So this is kind of a complicated topic. I'm giving you a few sound bites around it, which is doesn't feel like it's doing it justice, but um, hopefully you're getting a little bit of a taste of what I think is important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it is a huge topic. I mean, all these things, I mean, I've been throwing these things at you. All of them are huge. Uh, and, and we don't really have time to go into any of them in depth, but I think people are getting something out of this. I am. And it'll encourage people to take a look at the book, which really we're coming to the end of the, the segment. And I want to in, in no way to have you to sum up the book. I mean, this is a 40 day plan for healing and to ask you to summarize it for us would be ridiculous. You do cover a lot of it in the interview with Steve Kiesling, uh, on spirituality and health website. So I'll send people to, you know, to that, but more importantly to the book to get the whole thing. Having said that, is there something, one thing besides buying the book and following your instructions, is there something you could leave us with that people could do to get started on on what you're talking about? Yes. Well, I would say this book is about the missing link that I found in my own health and also in the health of the people that I serve, which is the key role of the gut as this input center for the brain and how the brain is really the ultimate output center for all the efforts of the body. And you can't have a healthy brain if your body is out of whack and you can't have a healthy body if your brain is out of whack. So I think, you know, what's a simple place to start? I would say it's with your food. And I have a specific way that I think um, is the most healing uh, way of eating. It's it's something that I've developed over um, my time taking care of patients. It involves a lot of things like eating a pound of vegetables a day, um, making sure that you get healthy fats, eating a balanced diet. I'm not a big fan of cutting out an entire macronutrient, you know, like carbohydrates. I think we need carbohydrates uh, to feel our best. But it's not just what you put on your fork, which is important, but it's also the timing of what you eat. And so the simplest thing that I want to leave people with is, is intermittent fasting. And I find that a lot of folks don't do it quite right. I think there's a way to do it that really um, feels, it fills you with grace and it allows you to um, let your DNA, the work that it worked the way that it was intended and the way that it evolved um, many, many thousands of years ago. And so for me, that's eating in a 16-8 protocol where I eat within an eight hour window and then I have a 16 hour overnight fast. 
So I typically eat between 10 and six. Why am I pushing this? Because I think it's one of the best ways of controlling your blood sugar. And blood sugar is so important, Rabbi, because 60% of cognitive decline, you know, that feeling that we start to have in our 40s and 50s of walking into a room and not remembering why. Like that's just the tip of the iceberg of what, what may be to come in the next 25, 30 years. And so 60% of cognitive decline is related to a blood sugar that's out of whack. If we can just focus on blood sugar, if we could care about our blood sugar as much as we do about our retirement accounts, that would make me happy. Like that would, that would be a job well done. <laughs> and I would say intermittent fasting is one of the most effective strategies for doing that. Okay. So just so I'm clear, intermittent fasting, you're saying is, is eating daily in that window, you're saying 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then that gives you the, the next 18 hours. That's what you're calling a fast. The next 16 hours. 16, yeah. <laughs> My day is longer than your day. Yes, yeah, your the day next is longer. 16, the next um, 16 yeah, so, so the next 16 hours, most of which you're sleeping. And you can adjust the time. You know, for some people, it's 8 to 4. For some people who socialize and go out to dinner, it's 12 to 8. So you can adjust the window. But I, I think that metabolic rest of 16 hours is kind of a key um, threshold for being able to manage your blood sugar. All right. Well, that's very helpful. Our, our guest today, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, is the author of Brain Body Diet, 40 Days to a Lean, Calm, Energized, and Happy Self. You can read Steve Kiesling's February 2019 interview with Dr. Gottfried uh, on our website, spiritualityhealth.com, and you can learn more about her work at her website, sarahgottfriedmd.com. Sarah, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. My pleasure. Thank you. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. Our producer is Ezra Baker, and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you, right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.